Episode 51, Snowgate. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a March 26, 2007 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Traveling in a Kansas blizzard has historically been a poor decision, but some people try it anyway. That's why the Kansas Department of Transportation began eliminating access to Interstate 70 in western Kansas during severe winter storms. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine a gate used to close Exit 17 near Goodland. Learn how this puny aluminum gate can stop transcontinental commerce cold. Then, did William Allen White enjoy a little March Madness? Join us as we play another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. This week, we connect the Emporia newspaper editor to the NCAA men's basketball tournament. Did White strap on sneakers and rack up a few triple doubles in the big dance? But first, Snowgate. Good afternoon, Nikayla. We're going to talk today about the subject of your last cool things, which was the I-70 Snowgate. Indeed. Which is a large aluminum gate with a road closed sign across the center. Right. But before we take a closer look at the gate itself, let's talk a little bit about the history of the interstate highway system. Kansas was the first state to have a stretch of this highway. Why was that? Well, actually, that's a little bit disputed about who actually had the first stretch of interstate. And... Um, as you can probably guess, the dispute is between Missouri and Kansas. Always. Uh, Missouri claims to have the first section of the interstate highway system, um, and they got it by signing the first contract to have it built. Kansas claims to have the first section of the interstate because they had the first section paved. So Missouri's wasn't paved? Well, they, had, they set up the first contract. So you were asking why Kansas was the first state to have a stretch of the interstate. Well... Um, I can't really pin down the exact reason. I think it was probably probably related to the fact that um, the whole interstate system was called the Dwight D. Eisenhower National System of Interstate and Defense Highways. It was a big, massive construction project to build a huge network of interstate highways um, connecting all the major cities and, and connecting all parts of the country. And it was sort of um, kind of the brainchild, brainchild of Dwight D. Eisenhower, President of the United States. And um, he kind of got the idea from when he was the Supreme Allied Commander during World War II, and he saw how the Germans were using the Autobahn, which is a European version of the interstate system. And uh, also when he was a young officer in the Army, he was part of a convoy that traveled across the United States. They were testing out equipment. And so he saw how difficult it was to transport vehicles and equipment across the United States. So he wanted to develop this interstate highway system. So the project was authorized by the Act of Congress in 1956. Um, like I said, it was a huge, it was a massive construction endeavor. And it was the largest public works project in history. And it had, so that's bigger than the Hoover Dam. I mean, when you think about all the highway and interstate that's been laid, I mean, that's a pretty big project, right? Yeah. 
Right. So it's like forty six thousand miles. Ended up costing about one hundred and twenty nine billion dollars, and that's still a running total. Well, just like I said, just like we said when the um, um, when the interstate began was a little bit disputable. When the interstate ended is also a little bit disputable.、Um, some people consider that the last traffic light. Um, the last traffic signal installed on Interstate 90 in Wallace, Idaho, in 1991. They kind of consider that as the common end date for the interstate,、um, but others consider the construction of the Interstate 90 tunnel, or in Boston, also known as the Big Dig, as the final fate of the interstate. But in reality, the truth is, is that the interstate will probably never stop being constructed and worked on. So some of the benefits of this、um, interstate system is that it increased safety considerations.、Um, statistically speaking, it's actually much safer to drive on the interstate than what it is on your average、um, U.S. highway because、um, the interstate was designed specifically to handle high speeds of travel.、Um, also interesting to, about the interstate is it was、um, designed for. Evacuation of urban centers. I mean, it was constructed in the time of the Cold War, and that was kind of one of the selling points: is that it could be used to evacuate major cities. And the way they do that is they essentially reroute traffic on one of the、um, one of the lanes to make them both outgoing lanes. And you, you you can actually see it implemented from time to time in Florida. They've、mm-hmm. they've done it a couple times when hurricanes are rolling in to evacuate cities. They'll open、um, lanes of travel both ways. And if the movie The Day After taught us anything, that's what will happen if they drop an atomic bomb. <laughs> exactly. Everyone from Kansas City will head west.、Um, okay, so this gate, the the snow gate we're talking about today, was used at an on ramp on I seventy. Why does a major highway need gates? Yeah, like we said, like I was saying, this gate was actually used at exit seventeen near Goodland, Kansas. And why does a major highway need gates?、Um, well, most don't really need gates, and.、Um, They weren't really originally installed on the interstate.、Um, nobody saw a need for gate. But the reason that you see gates on the interstate now is that in the 1990s, the Kansas Department of Transportation, who's responsible for clearing roads and dealing with roads during winter snowstorms, was tired of having to rescue stranded travelers on Interstate <laughs> 70 because it becomes a problem when all these people are on the interstates. First of all, it's dangerous that they they can be in a, a car accident. Second of all, it really takes time and resources to、uh, get these stranded cars out, and only then can KDOT、um, begin to focus on clearing the interstate. So KDOT came up with a gating system, and it is essentially gates are installed at every exit along I-70 in western Kansas. You don't see the gates in eastern Kansas, only in western Kansas, and they're along every. Exit from the Colorado border, border which is the town of Canarado,、um, and then they go all the way to Russell, Kansas. So then, what is the process for closing an interstate? It starts with the Kansas Department of Transportation secretary.、Um, that person is the only one that's authorized to actually close the interstate.、Um, so your mayor of Colby, Kansas, or、um, you know the senator、uh, Pat Roberts、uh, can't close interstate. Only the secretary of the Department of Transportation can. So then she'll authorize that it be closed. Um, and that's when messages begin to go up on what are called message boards along Interstate, and those actually start out. They're spread all along Interstate 70, so you'll see them. You'll see warnings for the closure of I-70,、mm-hmm. clear out here west or clear out here east in Topeka,、mm-hmm. and that's basically to give people reaction time so they so they're not piling up in these、um, areas of closed roads. 
So they put also then they put out the public announcement on the radio, um, and they announced that the interstate will be closed, which then sort of garners a lot of media coverage because people um, that's a big deal when the interstate gets closed and it gets a lot of media coverage in fact you'll always see reporters kind of reporting from i-70 and usually in front of a snow gate yeah yeah so then gates um gates are closed these gates which there's usually two of them one on the left side and one on the right side of the on-ramp they're swung shut and they're padlocked together they're usually manned by kansas highway patrol at all the major um, major on ramps, so in the towns along the route. But um, if if uh, if it's not a major route, then they just close the gate, and there's nobody manning it, and it gets padlocked. And the gates are usually closed in sequence, starting from the west and going east, because that's how the weather patterns typically work in Kansas. You usually have um, cold Arctic air coming in from the west, and it meets with um, more moist air from the Gulf, and that's what sort of creates. The intense weather phenomenons in Kansas. So they get, they close the gates one section uh, of interstate at a time, and they make each time they hit a point or a gate, they make the decision whether it warrants to close close it further. So though they close the interstate, they usually leave it available for local traffic to get through. So you know if you live in the area and you really need to get home, um, they'll usually you can talk to the um, highway patrol that are manning the gate and they'll let you through. So some issues with that is that communities kind of fill up, and KDOT has to work with local emergency management to monitor the status of the hotels and the uh, emergency hostels in each town. Mm-hmm. Um, closing the interstate, it takes a lot of coordination with some of the other neighboring, say, neighboring states as well, like uh, Colorado and Nebraska, um, specifically Colorado, because a lot, as I said, the weather comes in from the west, so you can actually have a snowstorm in eastern Colorado, but they'll shut down the interstate in western Kansas even though there may be no snow on the ground. And the reason that's done is to keep, is to is sort of keep, keep people from piling up in the affected areas. So yeah, so like I said, KDOT, they announce the closure, but they do not announce the opening of I-70, <laughs> which is really interesting because they, when they won't do that, like they'll just send their people out and they'll just open the padlocks and open the gate at some point. The reason they don't do that is because if they announced the opening of I-70, they would have truckers and cars <laughs> like basically pushing on the gate waiting to get on. Yeah. Big production to get the interstate closed. And I imagine that there are problems beyond beyond just the highway itself. So what are the ramifications of closing such a main thoroughfare? Primarily, it affects commerce and movement of people, obviously. There is tons of, of goods that travel down um, Interstate 70 every day. And to begin to close down the interstate and prevent those goods from moving can cause sort of a serious ripple effect. Um, for one thing, it, it'll affect the commodity itself. If you have something sensitive like livestock, if you're hauling livestock along Interstate 70 and you're going to be stuck in Colby, Kansas for you know maybe two <laughs> days... You've got to be able to deal with what's about to happen, and those communities have to be able to help you deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you also, like I said, you've got people stacking up in hotels, which is so good for the community, bringing in some extra money. It kind of it can be a it can be a boom for the community a little bit, yeah. So yeah, you got a lot of stranded travelers that you have to deal with, and then on the other hand, you have a lot of people that are waiting for their shipment of goods to arrive that could be waiting for some time. Um, blizzards of the variety that close a major highway are not necessarily common here in Kansas, but the ones we've had have been pretty incredible. So can you tell us about some of the worst? 
1855, there is legends that a blizzard came into town, came into the state, and um, froze the Kansas River solid. Wow. It <laughs> <laughs> might be a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Sounds like it was a cold blizzard. Um, in 1873, there was a blizzard that lasted for three days and basically buried dugouts and chicken coops. Mm. And <laughs> I know, you're in trouble when your chicken coop's buried. In your dugout. <laughs> Yikes, talk about a cold winter. But I think that kind of illustrates um, a significant point in, like, we have these b- blizzards come through today, and they're obviously very difficult to deal with. But if you think about in the, uh, in the 19th century, you have people – that there are no lines of communication. There's no phone calls going on. Nobody, you know, you can't give a warning of when a blizzard is coming to town. And once it's arrived, um, you have no lifeline to call out for help. Yeah, and you're living in a dugout, you know? You're, is it a pine? So the building material may not be so conducive to keeping you warm. I don't know. I guess in that case, you have the snow buries the dugout, so you're like an igloo. <laughs> and then you've got some insulation there. <laughs> In 1886, I think that was probably, from what I've come across, probably the mo- the worst of the blizzards. Um, let me just share some of the stories of the 1886 blizzard. <laughs> um, well, like I said, um, livestock is always a concern. Um, so the snow blocked railroads, right? And that's primarily how goods were shipped in 1886 um, to include trainloads of cattle that got stranded in Dodge City. So what do you do, you know, when you have truck load, you have train loads of cattle that are hungry uh, and you got to deal with it? Well, along with cattle in Dodge City, there's also there was reports of thousands of cattle dying out on the open range mm-hmm. from the extreme cold temperatures. Um, there was also stories of cattle, basically the snow being so high, cattle could just walk up and over fences. <laughs> And it was so cold that farmers reported that they had to rotate livestock in their barn to rotate the animals that were in the stalls on the north wall of the barn, or else those particular animals would freeze to death. Wow. Um, There was a story of a stagecoach that was moving from southwest Kansas to Fort Supply in Indian Territory, or Oklahoma. And upon arrival, passengers got out, and they found that their driver had frozen to death. That's scary for multiple reasons, not only because of the cold, but that stagecoach could have gone anywhere. I know. (laughs) Um, But, Nikayla, this is the worst story. Um, There was a family in Ness County, Kansas. A storm came through. uh, Rescuers went out to go try to find people and track them down. They came to this family's house, and when they walked in, they found out that the family had used up all the fuel um, in the stove. And that there was no furniture in the house because the family had burned up all the furniture when they ran out of fuel, all except the bed. Because when things got really bad, the family decided to crawl in bed and try to stay warm. So all seven of the members, they climbed into bed, tried to keep warm, but it didn't work out because they slowly froze to death. Oh, my gosh. And that's how rescuers found them. (laughs) Well, it was good logic, getting everybody together with the body heat. But I guess when you get so cold, you're not producing much body heat anymore. Right, yeah. Yikes. I'm glad we don't have blizzards very often. (laughs) I'm glad we have heating now. (laughs) I agree. Okay, so as a service to our listeners and as a way to promote some Kansas tourism, I think we should give them some ideas of the things they can see and do in the western half of our state if they are ever snowed in along I-70. So I'll name a place, and you tell me what they should see or do there. Okay, are you ready? Sure. Well, I mean, let's just flesh it out a little bit for the listeners 
because it really is kind of an interesting scenario when you get people that are traveling across the country, right? And they get they basically when the interstate closes, they kind of get locked down in these towns, right? But they're not necessarily snowed. I mean, that town is not necessarily snowed in. No, no, you're but just they stuck just there. They, you're just stuck there for a couple of days. So it really ends up you, you have people from California or something that are kind of stuck in. Um, some of these little rural towns, and they're based. Most of them, they're not very big, but they're little like way stations along Interstate 70 out there. And they're so, few and far between. Right, so. right. And, and you know, as somebody coming through, you might not think there's things to do, but you're wrong. Contraire. <laughs> okay, are you ready now? Yes. Okay, Goodland. Um, in Goodland, they can go check out a giant painting of Van Gogh's sunflower that sits atop an 80 foot tall easel. Um, apparently, Van Gogh was a little larger than people thought, and he uh, and he liked to go to Goodland from time to time to do paintings. Well, unfortunate too, because if it's eighty feet tall, there's no chance it's getting buried under snow. That's so true. even true. if there is snow on the ground, you can still see it. And appropriate since sunflower is our state flower. Mm-hmm. Okay, Oakley. Well, Oakley is known as the fossil capital of Kansas. So apparently, you can go there to watch elderly people. Well, okay. And you can also see the Fick Fossil Museum, which does not right, have elderly people. Yeah, it's called, it's called the fossil capital of the world because it's got some <laughs> of the oldest fossils in the known world. Okay, Quinter. Uh, Quinter is known as the gateway to Castle Rock, which should interest Stephen King fans. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Ellis. <laughs> Ellis. In Ellis, you can go check out the... We, I got a boyhood home thing going here. <laughs> so in Ellis, you can go check out the boyhood home of Walter P. Chrysler, the automotive tycoon. But don't be surprised when you find that the Chrysler home in Ellis is dramatically different than the Chrysler building <laughs> in New York. Yes, dramatically different, but still cool. Still worth the visit. Russell. Ah, Russell. Russell is the boyhood home of two U.S. Senators, Bob Dole and Arlen Specter. So if you're really bored and a fan of old Senators that talk a little funny, you can go check out their boyhood homes. Well, and people should also know that in western Kansas, we also have the home of the world's largest prairie dog, which shouldn't be missed. Yeah. It's somewhere on I-70 out west, somewhere around Oakley. Yeah. Well worth Totally check that out. It's not what you expect. No. It's a must-see, though. All right, thanks for telling us about the Snowgate. Okay. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. And joining me today is Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And our third member, Rebecca Martin, uh, couldn't make it. Um, I believe she ditched us for a meeting. Ugh, meetings. So this week's challenge was to connect William Allen White to the NCAA Men's Division One Basketball Tournament. And why would we be doing that right now, Nikayla? Because we're in March and it's time for basketball. Indeed. So uh, first we'll just do some general background on the, uh, on the tournament. Um, and Nikayla, feel free to jump in with any tidbits uh, at any time. All right. Um, the tournament is a single el- elimination tournament that was established in 1939 by the National Collegiate Athletic Association. It is often referred to as either the Big Dance or sometimes called March Madness. Um, and interesting, uh, interestingly, March Madness and Final Four are trademark names, are they not? They are trademark names. And if you try to mess with the NCAA, they will take you to courts. Um, one man, the man who actually coined the phrase March Madness, was um, 
an author, he wrote about the madness of March in a poem in the 1930s, and it was not really used in reference to basketball until the 1980s. And then they did go to court to decide who held copyright over the phrase March Madness. This yeah. man who originally wrote it in the 30s or the NCAA, and the NCAA won. And when it was revived in the, 19, in the 1980s, I think, um, the term March Madness, it was a reporter, and he was actually talking about... Um, all the basketball played in the month of March to include high school basketball, um, you know, not just specifically collegiate basketball, but somehow <laughs> NCAA got the trademark on it now. Um, so interestingly, in the early years, uh, the NCAA tournament was actually outdone by the National Invitational Tournament, or the NIT, which is kind of interesting. Because um, now it's uh, the NIT is kind of considered the um, not the consolation. <laughs> What's that? The not invited tournament. Correct. It's <laughs> kind of the consolation tournament, you know. Um, and it's played at Mas- Madison Square Garden in New York, and it's basically for the teams that didn't make it to the big dance. Mm. But yeah, so <laughs> it it the NIT was the thing for a long time throughout the 1930s and 40s. Um, the NCAA tournament only only invited eight teams, which is interesting because it's a much smaller bracket than what we think of today. It would take much less time than it takes now. Right. So it's eight teams, and they all had to be teams that had won their conference. So uh, in the 1930s and 40s, there was a lot of teams that weren't even part of a conference, a lot of big-name key teams. And so those teams got at-large spots in the NIT tournament, which actually made it more prestigious and more well-known. But... Uh, the NCAA tournament didn't hold um, only eight <laughs> slots for long. Uh, in the 1950s and 60s, it expanded to invite 16 teams, um, and it continued to expand in, in, up until the 1990s when it had 64 teams. And uh, finally, in 2001, they added they added the play-in game. Why? Make, why did they do that? I don't know. To make it 65 numbers, I don't know. So now it's 65 teams. And just some fun facts. Uh, Nikayla, who has won the tournament the most times? Well, that would be the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. They held Dynasty through the 60s and 70s, and they've won it 11 times. 11 times. Now, which Kansas school has won the championship the most times? That would be the University of Kansas. They've won twice. Right. And uh, the next school to win from Kansas to win it the most times, well, um, no other schools from Kansas have won <laughs> the NCAA championship. <laughs> okay, on to the solution portion. So I'll do mine first, and uh, I believe you have one, Nikayla? I do. All right, you can do yours. Um, okay, so we'll start with mine. Uh, well, the NCAA Men's Division II Basketball Tournament um, is organized and operated, obviously, by the NCAA, which is the National Collegiate Athletic Association. The NCAA originally formed as the Intercollegiate Athletic Association of the United States, or the IAAUS, in 1906. The IAAUS was an idea conceived by presidents of the three major Ivy League schools, Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. Though it's sort of conceived by those guys, it was pretty strongly advocated, and I think they were given some pretty serious direction by a man named President Theodore Roosevelt who uh, actually had saw his son uh, break a collarbone while playing football at Harvard, and he decided it was time for some standardizations and safety rules for collegiate athletics. He thought it was getting a little out of hand, so he strongly encouraged his buddies, who were presidents at all these Ivy League schools, to come up with some standards. And of course, well, 
Theodore Roosevelt is BFF with WAW. <laughs> well, that makes me think two things. One, thank God William Allen White knew Teddy Roosevelt's. <laughs> Made our jobs easier. No kidding. And two, it's kind of interesting because I believe that William Allen White was on the Kansas Board of Regents when the Kansas schools tried to get rid of football teams because it was such a dangerous sport. Mm -hmm. So interesting that they shared that in common. it's, It's either that these guys were overly sensitive about the sport of football or football was incredibly violent. I think it was probably the latter. Because, you know, if uh, Roosevelt's saying, whoa, slow down, it's a little too violent, that had to be some serious yeah. some he, serious injuring going on. He was a rough rider. I mean, come on. <laughs> okay, well, that's a good solution. There's, um, you know, a lot of degrees there and a lot of letters, but I think I've got one, too. So, as we've mentioned, the NCAA tournament was established in 1939. And one of the people who pushed the NCAA to get the tournament established was Fog Allen, who was a coach Mm -hmm. at the University of Kansas. And in the 1920s and 1927, Fog Allen and William Allen White exchanged some letters, which I haven't gotten to read them yet, but we'll have to update the podcast when when I do read them. Um, I'm pretty sure they're going to be about that football scandal that was going on at the universities because Allen wanted to keep football and white you know obviously wanted it to be more regulated or done away with altogether and of course William Allen White he's our guy so there, there you go. have it the tournament to Fog Allen to William Allen White well yeah that's a little that's that's way less letters than I used <laughs> I could have used initials if you wanted <laughs> that's all right um all right, Nikayla, would you like to reveal what the episodes, uh, what the next episode's challenge will be? I would, and hopefully we're not just living on a prayer with this. It's very clever. Uh, right. Yeah, indeed. The challenge is to connect William Allen White to Bon Jovi, the 1980s hair band from New Jersey. And you don't have to connect him just to John Bon Jovi. It can be to someone else in the band or the band as a whole. Right. We're not limiting you here. Right. It can be the front man or the band, whatever. Right. Um, so We're not picky. Um, yeah, so unless you'd like to see us go out on a blaze of glory. Oh, man. <laughs> find a connection between William Alloway and Bon Jovi and send it to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. concludes episode 51 snowgate if you'd like to actually see the snowgate you can by visiting forces of nature and exhibit at the kansas historical society in topeka or you could just drive down interstate 70 to goodland kansas be sure to come back in two weeks when nikayla zimmerman tells us all about a giant clock from kansas city that almost drowned in the 1903 flood Finally, if you'd like to provide some feedback on our podcast, you can access a survey on our website, kshs.org, from either the Cool Things page or the podcast page. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear about. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Real stories.